Please rise for the reading of God's word. Today I will be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to them, hit to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Bazabul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. In 1926, Reverend James Allen Francis wrote a poem about Jesus, concluding with these words. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure for much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. Jesus has impacted history more than any other individual. He's inspired countless books. His birth date is at the center of our calendars. His name has caused billions to worship and millions to be martyred. It only makes sense that each of us answers the question, Who is Jesus? No question is more important than this one. Let's pray. Father, through your spirit today, show us Jesus. Bring us on our spiritual journeys to know him in greater ways and to be inspired to spend more and more time with him, to know him more fully. And as we reflect on him, as we behold him, Lord, transform us more and more into his image. Amen. One author, mirroring a number of other authors, challenged us to honestly answer the question for ourselves, who is Jesus? Writing, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Now, these views are not far-fetched. All three of them are in our passage today. There are those who called him a lunatic. Others charged him with being controlled by the devil. And he was honored as the Son of God. And these are the most logical views when you consider what Jesus claimed about himself. But we are not always logical. We are egocentric and tend to reinvent Jesus just as those who call him simply a good moral teacher. We invent him to see him as we want to see him. When we add those responses to the three already mentioned, we're going to see five different views about Jesus in our passage. We're going to see the view that Jesus is like Santa Claus. Jesus is a lunatic. He is demon-possessed. He is whoever we want him to be, and he is the Son of God. So, last week's passage concluded with the Pharisees and the Herodians plotting together Jesus' destruction. Our passage opens with the opposite response. The people are clamoring for him as we read in verses 7 through 11. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. They came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. We can see the crowd. They press in on Jesus, and that crowd comes from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, principally Jewish territories. They also come from Idumea and the Transjordan region, which is a mixed Jewish-Gentile territories, and Sidon and Tyre, which were Gentile regions. So we see all of these people coming together around Jesus, and they become a picture of what the kingdom of God will be as racial, cultural, ethnic, and religious barriers are broken down so that every nation and tribe that comes together around Jesus becomes one in Jesus. However, these were not yet the kingdom. In fact, we don't know if they were even believers since there's no mention of their faith in Jesus. No declaration that Jesus is their Savior or the Lord. The masses press in on him. They weren't concerned with his identity. They sought him for his healing miracles, just like children seek Santa Claus for gifts. There aren't any expressions of faith. Not one manifestation of gratitude. No declaration of Jesus' identity and no care for his welfare. The disciples had to get a boat so he wouldn't be crushed. And Mark intentionally contrasts these pseudo-followers with the demon-possessed. Verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. 
See, the unclean spirits knew the identity of Jesus. Those who travel in the spiritual realm know who Jesus is. And they couldn't help but bow down before him and declare he is the Son of God. Now, the term Son of God appears three times in the book of Mark. It opens the book in verse 1-1 saying, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And since the book opens with those words, they should be rattling in our head throughout the book as we read it. Until it comes to a crescendo at the cross. When we read in verse 19 of the 15th chapter of Mark, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last breath, he said, truly this man is the Son of God. The proclamations of the Son of God about Jesus are right at the beginning, right at the end. They form bookends to the Gospel of Mark. So it should lead us to understand that this book is about the identity of Jesus. And the third time, Son of God is mentioned here. The demons are the ones crying out that he is the Son of God. It's an indictment against the crowd, an indictment against any of us who continue to be more interested in what Jesus offers than in Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus wants us to draw the right conclusion about himself. He didn't want the demons to reveal his identity because he didn't want them to be his advertising agency, tying Jesus to only the miracles. He wants those who declare him son of God to come to their conclusion about him by beholding him for who he is. You know, the consumerist view of Jesus is not limited to the first century. It's infested many in Christendom today. Sky Jathani captures this in his depiction of the, the prodigal son and how the prodigal son leaves the father for what he can get from the father. He says, By placing all our focus on receiving God's blessings and gifts, we behave just like the arrogant young man in the story. We value what God can do for us, but not God himself. We seek a relationship with God as a utilitarian means to an end. And although we may praise him with our words, our hearts are set on what we hope to get from him. These words are convicting to me, perhaps to you as well. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus wants to lavish us with his love, with his grace, and with his gifts. But that's not the end all. It's when we receive his love that we in turn should be drawn to him and love him because he loves us first. We love him as a result. So let his gifts draw us to him, not to use him, but to honor him and worship him. So Jesus then goes up to a mountain and he appoints 12 apostles And when he returns home, he once again is swarmed by those wanting his touch. We read verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered around, so they could could not even eat. 
And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. And they were saying, he's out of his mind. Well, strangers couldn't get enough of Jesus. Uh, those close to him had a whole different opinion. They wanted him to disappear. The word translated family literally means those of him. So it could be family members, it could be close friends. But those who were near to him were declaring him to be out of his mind. They saw him as feeding a frenzy, as having delusions of grandeur. The stories they heard about him being called the Holy One of God, the Son of God. He's challenging the religious leaders over the Sabbath. His claim to forgive people and claiming to be bringing the kingdom of God was just, that was too much for him. I mean, imagine one of your relatives making such claims. You'd want to institutionalize them, and so they did as well. Jesus was out of his mind. He was a lunatic. None of us want to call Jesus a lunatic today. But if he is not who he said he is, what else is he? I mean, one who had the audacity to claim to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection in the life, the true vine, the only way to God, the ultimate truth, the divine shepherd, and the great I am. He's either all of these, or he's a lunatic like these relatives believed, or worse, he's a lying blasphemer used by Satan to undermine the kingdom of God not spread it, the view that the scribes from Jerusalem had. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. You know, it appears that after the contentious battle with Jesus had with the religious leaders over the Sabbath, that Jerusalem was alarmed. And so they sent scribes to monitor Jesus. As they witnessed the crowd, I'm sure there was a growing concern about them being able to keep their authority. So how do they deal with Jesus? What were they going to say to get the people to change their perceptions about, about him? They couldn't deny his supernatural ministry because everyone was witnessing the miracles. And, and think about this. Jesus' enemies believed in Jesus' miracles. They didn't deny him. How can we, 2,000 years later, deny Jesus' miracles when his enemies denied them when they were did not deny them when they were happening? They were supernatural. So, religious leaders think, how can we turn this around? Ah, oh, miracles are supernatural, but they're not from the power of God. They're from the power of the devil. And so that's why they cry out, Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. So Jesus counters that with three statements. First, he exposes the fallacy of their logic. How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If the kingdom of God is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. If Satan was working against his own kingdom, then he was working towards the end of his own rule. That doesn't make sense. Second, Jesus explained what he was doing. Verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, Jesus is the strong man. And he has entered into Satan's house to bind Satan. To make him ineffective so he could free us from the power and control of Satan. That's exactly what was expected of the Messiah when the kingdom comes. It was perfectly in line with the popular Jewish understanding that the subduing of demons would characterize the Messianic age. Third, Jesus warned them that they were close to committing the unpardonable sin. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. Not sure Jesus' warning had any impact on the scribes, but it certainly has caused a lot of concern for Christians who are fearful of committing the unpardonable sin. What is it? David Aiken captures the essence of it. In this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. The failure of the scribes to recognize Jesus could be forgiven. But judgment that his power was demonic, however, betrayed a defiant resistance to the Holy Spirit. Okay. See, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not about the words that are spoken. It's about the heart's resistance to the Holy Spirit witness to Jesus. No one comes to faith apart from the Holy Spirit drawing them to see that they need a Savior and subsequently drawing them to see that Jesus is that Savior. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but if we block that work, we cannot be forgiven. We cannot receive the grace of God. By saying the work of the Holy Spirit that was pointing to Jesus, by saying that was the work of the devil, the scribes were consciously resisting the Holy Spirit's call to them. As long as we resist the testimony of the Holy Spirit, we will never accept Jesus as Savior. We will never receive his grace and forgiveness. If you are here without Christ. The Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart. Don't let the voices of others overrule the voice of the Holy Spirit. So during his confrontation, Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. They sought to take control of him. 
His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. You know, the word translated seeking appears 10 times in the Gospel of Mark. Every single time, it speaks of somebody trying to control Jesus' agenda and have power over him. You know, his mother most likely wanted him under control because she was concerned for him. He's aroused the wrath of the, the religious leaders. And now you have the scribes putting him in league with Satan, calling him a blasphemer, saying he's run by demons. Of course, a mother would be concerned. Get him out of there. Get him back home where we can control him. Now, the other brothers and perhaps sisters, they might have had more mixed motives. It might have been more about protecting themselves because they're identified with Jesus because they're relatives. So they needed him to get them out of the limelight, under their control, so that any threat to them would be diffused. Today, we face a similar temptation to control Jesus, to protect ourselves or, or to protect Jesus' reputation. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God clashes with the pluralism of today. His moral teachings confront the current gender ethics. His warnings about hell offend the modern views of a therapeutic God. His claim on our lives lead to allegations of power-mongering. Jesus is not very acceptable today, the real Jesus. However, if we could change his reputation. So many outside of Christianity and many inside the churches today are reinventing Jesus to make him more palatable to themselves and those who they're trying to reach. Now, if we could remake him to be someone more acceptable to our culture, we could protect ourselves, we wouldn't be marginalized, and more people would probably believe in him, but not as Savior, as a good moral teacher. We could protect ourselves and Jesus like his mother and brothers tried to by controlling who he is. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. He is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. See, Jesus responded to his family's pleas by standing firm and identifying a new family who stood with him. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the family of God, those who follow Jesus' footsteps in following the will of God, those who live like Jesus. Now, they don't live like Jesus to get Jesus to be their Savior. They live like Jesus because he is their Savior. 
They don't follow him because they're already forgiven and justified. No, they do follow him because it's already, they're already forgiven and justified. And this is also true of the 12 disciples who we skipped over, so we're going to go back to verses 13 and 14 because they too are the part of the family of God. And we see clearly Jesus' commission to them. They went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, the sent ones, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. See, 12 men were appointed to be the front line of Jesus' family. Their job was to convey and to bring the kingdom of God through the gospel that they preached. And their authority was confirmed by their ability to cast out demons, to have the same power over the demonic realm. They left their fishing boats, the tax collector's booth, zealots, all walks of life to be with Jesus. We want to camp on those words, to be with Jesus. They lived there three years alongside Jesus, learning from him. But the greatest thing they got was to experience Jesus, to learn more and more and gain insight in deeper, deeper depths to who Jesus is. Our spiritual lives begin and end with being with Jesus. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The Apostle Paul wrote that we are transformed by beholding the glory of God. By beholding the glory of God, we are transformed into the image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. See, we cannot abide in Christ. We, we cannot behold the glory of God as we should, that transforming glory, unless we are spending time with him. Christian life isn't about doing. It is more about being with him, seeing him. And as we see him, we are transformed. See, when we are with Jesus, we will see Jesus' unrivaled beauty, grasp his unconditional love, perceive his radiant glory, and experience his untainted goodness. God will cease to be how we acquire our treasure, and he will become our treasure. How much time are we spending with Jesus? Beholding him, knowing him. We start our day with beholding and being with Jesus. Can we pause during the day to spend time with him? In the evening, to be with him, to acknowledge his presence throughout the day. That's to be with Jesus. As the Jesus was one with the Father, we are one with him. As Jesus was led by the Spirit, we are to be led by the Spirit. As Jesus prioritized time with the Father, we need to prioritize time with Him. 
as Jesus walked moment by moment dependent upon God, we are to walk moment by moment dependent upon God. So who is Jesus? Those who are not yet Christian may conclude that he was delusional or empowered by spiritual forces other than God. They may reinvent him to be more palatable by being selective about the scripture they accept. Those who are Christians may see him as a great gift giver or they may reinvent him into something more to their liking or they may listen to his words, affirm his miracles, observe the way he lived and died and proclaim Truly, this man is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, it is at the foot of the cross where we cannot deny who you are. It is there you poured out love that's incomprehensible, sacrifice that's unimaginable, pain being endured that's beyond description. Not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain and separation from the Father that we cannot fathom. We join today with the centurion. Truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. We bow before you. Amen.